But we live in an age of great change. Lots of things are changing. And uh, some people rejoice in it. Some people lament it. But the one thing that nobody can do is deny it. And some of that change is for the good. Like the invention of electricity. Or the advancement of medicine that has turned the death sentences of the past into uh, a mere prescription. In fact, technologically speaking, the world has changed so much and so fast and so dramatically that if you were in the prime of life a hundred years ago in the 1920s, you would have more in common with Moses than you do with most of the people alive today. When you speak about change from the year 2000 on, most people aren't thinking about technology. They're thinking about a great moral change and transformation that's happening. And it's changing everything. From the way we think about life to what it means to be human to what is just and justice. Uh, Even history itself is not immune to sweeping revisions. Everything has to be measured by a new Morality, And we're troubled by all of this, and rightly so. You recognize the, the so-called moral progression as moral regression. It, it alarms some of you. Some of you, it, it angers you. It stirs you up to, to action against it, certainly to thoughts against it. There are many people who want to do something about everything that's happening. But Christians, especially Christians are the only ones really in any position to affect any change. And the reason for that may not be the reason you expect. So as you, you see the problem facing the world today, facing the church, as new and as radical as it seems, it isn't new or radical at all. It's the same enemy the church has always faced. It just put on a change of clothes. But the tactics and the trickery, none of that has changed. And the danger in all of this, in a world changing so rapidly, is, is the church in a desire to address the moral landslide. It can lose sight of its mission, and it can lose sight of its true foe. And losing sight of those things, we run the risk of, well, for one, being tempted to take up the same weapons as the world does, or worse become deceived ourselves and do more harm than good. The church can begin to think that its greatest enemies come from the outside, right? That they're out there. That's what we really need to be cautious and and on guard against. And in its focus to resist or oppose that, we actually forget about the greater threats and forgetting about them, we leave ourselves open to attack. And so this morning, again, we're going to be in various passages. We'll start in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 14. But we want to see the danger, not that the world around us faces, but the danger that the church faces. How does the devil seek to destroy and weaken the church? And what has the church been given to both resist and counter his influence in the world? Before we begin, let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. It always puts the focus 
on the right things. In your word, the emphasis is always on the right spot. It discerns all of the trouble we will face in the world and tells us where we most, uh, where we where we should put our attention and fix our guards. And so, Almighty God, we thank you. You've not left us in the world as orphans. You have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. You have given us prayer. So many things, Lord, with which to fortify our souls. And I pray that we would be a people who are well equipped and knowledgeable about the use of the equipment you have given us. That we would honor you, that your church would be protected and built up, and that your name would be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, if you remember, we looked at the work of the evil one in the world in a kind of a, a broad way. What does he do and how does he do it? And one thing that was obvious and ought to be obvious is his success. He sets out to deceive the world. He is a deceiver. He destroys through deception. And if you are out to deceive, then the greatest possible deception is to have the people you are deceiving not even believe that you exist. And nobody does believe in the evil one today. Politicians, institutions, the entertainment industry. If you were to ask 99% of the people governing these things, do you believe that there is a real devil in the world at work influencing things for his own evil ends, they would probably laugh. It's a laughable thing. But all that does is show how captivated they are by him to do his will. And so many of the problems we face in the world come to us, not just as the, as the thoughts and ideas of men, but behind them all are the intentions of the evil one. And this is why there are so many problems in the world today that we face. There are so many counterfeits to Christ. And seeing, seeing all of that, we are tempted as a church, we are tempted to focus all of our energy on that, on the ideas and philosophies in the world that present counterfeit salvations, counterfeit uh, gods. And in doing all of that, and in putting all of our attention there, and all of our thoughts wrestling with that, we run the risk of opening ourselves up to far greater danger. Because it's never things like that that threaten the true church. It never is. Our enemy is much craftier than that. It's not that they pose no threat. They do. But what does Paul warn us of in Acts 20, 29, and 30? He says, you don't have to turn there. But he says this. He's speaking to the church. I believe it's a church at Ephesus. He is about to leave. And he tells the church, you're going to have to be on guard against something. Here it is. I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you. 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And you see what Paul says. The real enemy, the real threats that the church faces always come from within. They come from false teachers and false doctrines and a, and a mishandling of the Word of God. And this should come as no surprise, really. Because if you wanted to kill a man, if you wanted to destroy him, you wouldn't go to him angry, glaring at him and give, a, give him a, a bottle of poison and say, here, you drink this. That wouldn't work, would it? No, you go as a friend. You go as a help. You go to someone who is thirsty and you say, here, right? Here's a glass of cool, refreshing water. And you hand it to him. And it is 99.99% cool, refreshing water with only a single drop of imperceptible poison mixed in. And that's how you kill somebody. You don't go and pour the poison all up. You deceive them. You give them something that looks good, but is deadly. And that's how the devil works, especially towards the church. That's how he seeks to poison the people of God. And that is why the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the greatest threats we face as the church are not from the world, but from within. And the common tactic, the one the devil is constantly employed in, is to deceive the church with fine-sounding, plausible, noble arguments that in the end either leave the church at best off course and ineffective and at worst apostate and falling away from the truth entirely. And he does this work against the church primarily through false teachers bringing false doctrine. How many times do you read Jesus or Paul the Apostle when they're writing, they warn the church, watch out for the Roman officials. How many times do you read in the New Testament that they say, watch out and beware of your political opponents. How many times do you, do you read, be careful around those followers of those pagan religions and other cultures. No, rarely if at all. The Bible recognizes those aren't the threat. Now, do they pose some danger to the church? Absolutely. And we're not naive about those things. But is that where God commanded His church to be continually watchful about? No. We're warned over and over and over again to watch out for those who come in the name of Christ with some distortion of Christianity. The Lord warns us, beware of those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's, that's the deception. They don't look like wolves. They look like sheep. They look like Christians. They say what Christians say. They use the same book. They have all the same concerns that Christians have. And that's why it's so deceptive. They look good on the outside and they can carry on the charade for a while, but inwardly they've come to destroy and they might not even know it. And so now we arrive at our passage. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. It says this, For such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. 
And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Have you ever thought of a false teacher that way before? As a servant of Satan? Well, this is what it says, and that's exactly what they are. And that's how he works. He comes disguised as an apostle of Christ. He comes working through those who are held captive by him to do his will. He doesn't assault the church in the same way he does the word. He comes to us as an angel of light. And he comes through those claiming to be teachers and pastors and and theologians. And he doesn't come with things that are so obviously untrue. He comes with, yes, unbiblical, but very fine-sounding solutions to real problems. For example, let me give you an example of some of these. One, somebody recognizes there's a lack of holiness in the church. They're very concerned. And online they find someone who, who shares that concern, that same concern about sin and, uh, and the lack of holiness. And so they begin to listen. <clears throat> and everything sounds really good. All of the problems they see, this teacher recognizes. But then something begins to happen. Instead of preaching justification by faith in Christ alone, which is the only gospel, it's the only message that can save, that can actually free someone from the grasp of sin and and give them the grace to live a holy life, this preacher begins to exalt the keeping of the law as the way to really be a Christian. If you want to be a Christian, you must keep the law. If you want to create holiness in people, you must constantly preach the law. And if you don't think that's a problem, I dare say you haven't read the New Testament. Because one of the greatest problems consistently facing the early church was legalism. It was faith in Christ plus Something else, whatever that something else was. Maybe it was circumcision. Maybe it was adherence to the Jewish calendar. Oh, no, Christ was absolutely crucial. You cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ. You need that. But they would go on to say, what you also need is, and you can fill in the blank. That's why the reformers were were so adamant. We are not justified by faith in Christ. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Alone. I remember once, uh, one time I was at a Bible study and I got, I got quite upset. The speaker was concerned about a lack of holiness and about people thinking it was possible to be a Christian and still be worldly with no separation at all. Good concern. And so he had an object lesson. I think some of you might have been there. It was a bottle filled with dirt and he poured water into it and then he wrapped it in a paper and he wrote on the bottle, the name Christ. And he held it up and he said, see, all the dirt in the bottle is covered by Christ. Is that what it means to be a Christian? And is that how you become a Christian? And some of the people hummed and hawed about it and some of them weren't sure. And then he says, no, it's wrong because you're still dirty. And then he held out the jar and asked if anyone would like to take a drink. And he tore the paper with the name of Christ on it off, crumpled it up and threw it on the ground and went on to say, if you want to be a Christian, you need to be clean. You need to to dig in and get all that dirt out first. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Now, of course, he meant well. His concern was righteous. He was concerned about holiness in the body of Christ, something we ought to be deeply concerned about. And I don't doubt for a single second that this man's intentions were good. But in his good, intentioned zeal, 
He did something very, very foolish. He distorted the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. But that's how subtly it can happen. A genuine man who loved the Lord, a real concern for godliness, and yet it led to a distortion of the gospel itself. It became legalism. But now imagine you're a church that's well taught in this. And, and you, are, you are fortified against legalism. And you see the errors of legalism. And you resist it wholeheartedly. Are they safe? If the church cannot be deceived into thinking it's Christ plus something else, have they exhausted the cunning of the devil? Well, no, very often, if that's the case, then the opposite approach is made. If they've, if they've you know, dug their trench and guarded themselves against legalism and, and hate it and know how to answer it, then the devil pushes them to the other extreme. And instead of adding good works to the gospel, instead of adding an element of own, one's own righteousness, they just deny holiness and righteousness altogether. And it's a good desire. They desire to defend the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They desire to put down what they rightfully see as the heresy of legalism. And instead of... <clears throat> and, and in that good desire to see this gospel protected, in that desire to see that heresy put down... Some teachers do away with the idea of godliness altogether. Do away with it entirely. Either sin is made of little or no consequence, or the grace of God is misrepresented. The result's the same. Christians continue on in open, unrepentant sin. We're saved by grace alone, apart from works. That's what they would say. So far, so good. And if you think any works are necessary at all in any way in the Christian life, to live as a Christian, if you think holiness is necessary, well, how is that anything but adding to the finished work of Christ to say that Christians need to have good works? No, all you need is faith. And it sounds very plausible, doesn't it? It starts out quoting Scripture. It's born from a desire to protect and preserve justification by faith alone. But again, Ephesians 5, 4-12 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If your life is characterized by sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness, Idolatry? What does Paul say? No inheritance in the kingdom. Same thing in Galatians 5. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 6 here, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So there is a, a deception out there, a, a deception that says you can be immoral, you can continue in impurity. You can be covetous. You can be filthy and foolish in your talk, in your jokes, all of those things. You can be just like the world around you and be a Christian, a carnal Christian. The grace of God is so great and His mercy is so extensive. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do so long as you asked Him into your heart or asked Him for forgiveness or acknowledged Him one time as the only Savior, came up in an altar call. If you've done any of that, you're on your way to heaven and don't you dare let anyone else tell you 
otherwise. Have you ever heard that? That is a lie. It distorts everything about God, everything about Christ, everything about grace, everything about the gospel. It it distorts the work of Christ because it means His death only half delivers us. It can deliver us from the penalty of sin, but not from the power of sin. It distorts the gospel. It makes it entirely about us and our need of salvation, removing any element of the glory of God from it. And yet when you go back and you read in Ezekiel, the biggest concern of God in salvation is the glory of His own name. And it flatters with false assurance. If you do this, you're safe. And anyone who tries to change your mind, they're an enemy. It makes the truth an enemy. And if you believe this about yourself, you will be lost. You see how, how, how damning this doctrine is. You boil it down and it's demonic. It says, listen, it says, you can be certain you are saved while at the same time engaging and enjoying in all of those things that call down the wrath of God upon the world. It says, you can be a Christian and still live in the kingdom of darkness. You can be a Christian and still belong to Satan. I've even heard someone once tell me it's possible to be a Christian and at the same time an atheist. It is utter stupidity. It is against the word in every way. And this is one of the most common avenues of attack in the whole history of the church. Who is a genuine Christian? If the devil can confuse a man about this, he has done a great deal of harm to the individual and to the church. Another tactic of the evil one. Less theological but more endearing. Romans 16, 17 through 20. It says, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Have you ever, or here, here you have warnings against those who cause divisions and who throw obstacles into doctrine. They are people who ask, does the Bible really say this? And then they, they cast doubt on what is true. I mean, that's been the devil's uh, design from the beginning. Has God really said? Now, that's a tactic of Satan. That's why he appears in verse 20. Satan is the one causing the division and the obstacles and sending the flatterers. <coughs> and flattery is not to be overlooked because that in this passage is how his agents work. They work more through flattery than through substance. They say things that make you feel really good about yourself. And when someone makes you feel really good about yourself, you tend to trust them, don't you? I mean, people do this, right? Flattery, it makes you lower your defenses. It inclines you to like a person when they say nice things about you. You're more apt to trust them and to believe that, well, they have my best intentions, my best interests in mind. They're looking out for me. And then when they sow seeds of doubt, you water them. You think, well, maybe what they said is true. I mean, certainly this person was right about the good things they said about me. Maybe they're right about this too. Whatever it might be, flattery prepares the ground for the seeds of deception. 
And so any mature Christian knows that flattery is something to watch out for. Of course, someone might be just encouraging you or, or trying, to, trying to edify you, but you must be discerning enough not to be blindly taken in by every kind word. You ought to rightfully be suspicious of flattery so that you will not be taken in by the evil one. Another common tactic is to take a noble goal, a scriptural command, and exalt this one command above all the others. Again, this is a tactic of the evil one to lead people astray. Now, it's not so much a, a denial of the truth, but it destabilizes the truth. One particular goal is held up as supremely important above and to the exclusion of every other. It's so important that now it stands above every other doctrine and everything else. They don't matter in comparison. And nowhere has this happened more in the history of the church than in evangelism. Most heresy and difficulty that the church has faced in the last 100 years have come specifically from a desire to reach the lost. It has. Maybe you hear this and you think, well, you, you don't think we should be evangelizing? And you're going to shut your ears off. I'm not listening to another word coming out of your mouth. Well, maybe you've fallen into this trap because it certainly is a trap. The desire to reach people became an all-controlling, all-important mission of the church, listen, at the expense of everything else, even upholding the truth. And don't just take my word for it. History bears this out. Liberalism, where Scripture is forced through a materialist sieve to strain out all the supernatural. You've heard this. Uh, people deny the virgin birth. People deny the resurrection. People deny everything about Christ. Anything supernatural, anything divine. Why was it done? Well, if you were to ask somebody promoting this in the early 20th century, they would say, well, we're doing it to reach the lost. It's done for the sake of evangelism. We must reach more people. And people don't believe in the supernatural, not in the 21st century, so we must revise the message. It hasn't worked out that well for them. Or the church growth movement. What was this? Well, it was a redefinition of church. Not a, a definition according to God's Word, but according to the tastes and the flavors of the age. It's, uh, it advocates, its advocates maintained, said, we have to do this if we want to attract people. If we want to fill up the seats so that they would hear the gospel and be saved. And so worldliness was incorporated into the church. But by the time the seats were full, there wasn't much gospel left. And all of the distinction between the church and the world was erased. And in the end, the world overtook the church. A good desire reached the lost. A church-destroying way of doing it. Or think about how much is done in order to gain influence. Well, if we just partnered with this group, we can influence them for Christ. If we go to this conference to speak, we can influence those who will hear. Now, first or second John expressly forbids this. And yes, even though the people must be reached, not in this way. But if the all-controlling, singular mission of the church is to reach the lost at whatever the cost, well, then all of these things make sense. But that is an example of taking something noble and good. Evangelism, reaching the lost, is a godly ambition, but it can be taken and distorted 
and used to weaken the truth and weaken the church. And there are so many other deceptions. I mean, the gospel plus speaking in tongues or, or making Christianity all about ceremony and ritual or making it all about the mysterious things and all about the end times and prophecy or all about cultural conservatism or you can make it all about the family and, and homeschooling. And the list is just absolutely endless. It grows even today. New deceptions are added to the catalog continually. So many, you, you couldn't possibly keep track of them all. And since there are so many to count... The question that comes up in our minds, well, how do we protect ourselves against this? How can, we, how can the church defend herself that we're not taken in by this idea and that idea and this counterfeit and that false doctrine? Well, the church must always be on defense against the ploys and plots of the evil one. We know that. We must be ready to withstand the assaults when the gates of the dark kingdom open and the minions march out. We are to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, but with so many conflicting and confusing and competing voices. How do we do this? Well, the Lord is not surprised by this. And in His Word, He has given us some diagnostic tools to help us discern those errors and preserve the church. And the first of those tools, it's taught in Matthew 7. You diagnose a teacher and a teaching by looking at the fruit. What does this teaching produce in the life of the one teaching it and in the ministry they supposed to have? <coughs> so, for example, if a Bible teacher comes, if a, if, a, if a teaching comes or teachers come and their own lives are unholy, if they're worldly, if they live opulent, decadent lives, or, or their families are in total disarray, or they're mean-spirited and arrogant people, and if what they are saying creates the same kind of people, people like them, then their teaching, in however many points it is correct, it is corrupt. If what they preach and teach and hold to, if it leads them to become more worldly and less holy, if it leads them to exalt the works of the flesh and stifle the fruits of the Spirit, they're not a teacher worth listening to. They're a false teacher. And this can be obvious with certain prosperity gospel preachers flying around in their jets preaching about how God wants us to be filthy rich, but it's rarely so obvious. There are others who appear to be faithful. I think of Joshua Harris. Some of you probably know that name. He wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, and it was a very popular book amongst Christians, and if you didn't know the Scriptures very well, you probably would have thought it was a good book too. But the man has since totally repudiated Christianity and abandoned the faith. He has fallen away. He's left it behind and is no longer walking with the Lord. And if the fruit of what he taught and what he believed was apostasy, then it shows there is some deficiency in his teaching. Apostasy means falling away from the, from the face. Somebody who looked like a Christian, but in the end proved that they were not. Now does that make him, uh, does, it, does that make him a teacher? You can go back and read his book and say, there were a few right things in here, maybe I can keep the book. No, it shows that there was some grave and fatal error in his teaching. And you don't need to go through all of his books and sermons and all of it was to find out what that lethal error was. You can see it just looking at the fruit of his life. And he's far from the only example. I think of uh, Mark Driscoll, 
Though not falling completely away, he made a shipwreck of his faith. Does that make him a false teacher? Well, not in the sense that he openly taught heresy. As far as I know, he didn't teach any at all. Now, well, what should we make of that? Well, the same is true. The fruit of his teaching was the collapse of the church that he pastored. And again, you see in it, even if you might not be able to detect what it is, there is some fatal flaw. And it may be that everything a teacher says is true, but there's an overemphasis on one truth at the expense of all the others. This happens all the time and is a tactic of the devil, as I already pointed out. And it can lead to a tremendous distortion of what real Christianity is. It's a kind of Christianity so unbalanced it can't stand it. It falls over and creates a new mess. All of the emphasis are wrong. The applications are all wrong. And maybe you've seen this. You've gone into a church and they always preach every time a wonderful sermon about the love of God. And that's all that's ever preached. And what happens? You get a distorted view of who God is. You get a distorted view of what the gospel is. You get a distorted view of John 3.16 and of everything. And what does it create? It creates Christians who are weak or faltering. It creates leaders who maybe don't think much of sin. It has a tremendously bad effect on the church. The fruits are bad. And the deficiency shows itself in that fruit. It's a, it's a warning. Don't listen to that. And so no matter how many points a teacher may have correct, and there might be many, if it produces a worldly person or an arrogant person or if it produces worldliness or godlessness in those who hear it, it's a false teaching and ought to be ignored. This is not generally just a man in error, but it's a spirit of the evil one at work to seek to deceive and destroy the church. A second diagnostic tool that is given in 1 John 4.3 tells us, it tells us to test the spirits. We should not naively believe everything we hear. We ought to put everything to the test. Everything we read and we see ought to be passed through a test to help us evaluate, should I be reading this? Should I be listening to this? Is this, is this all true? I, I forget who it was. He was reading a book and it was a difficult book. And uh, somebody asked him, how can you read that? And he said, I read it like I eat a fish. I eat the meat and I spit out the bones. Well, in everything you read, there's going to be meat and there's going to be bones. And you need to be able to discern the difference so that you don't get choked. So whatever we're, whatever we're uh, listening to, whenever a teaching is presented to us, we ought to ask ourselves, is this informed by the spirit of truth or by the spirit of evil? Which spirit is at work here? Does it align itself with the truth of God or is it aligned with some other system which is the spirit of Antichrist? And thirdly, the most important defense we are given without which all other defenses are meaningless, it's the word of God itself. We defend ourselves by knowing the truth. And knowing the truth is what helps us to detect error. In fact, we are almost entirely helpless without knowledge of the word rightly understood. It, it is impossible, impossible to study every ism or false religion or Christian called out there. And we ought to be thankful because you don't have to. You only have to become an expert in one book. A book that's all meat and no bones. The Bible. It's like how people are trained to detect counterfeit bills. And you've heard this a million times, I'm sure. 
But in the training, they, they only handle the real thing. They're taught what the real thing looks like. And then, because they know what the real thing is, because they know what the real thing is supposed to look like, when a counterfeit comes along, they may not be able to say exactly what's wrong with it, but they know it's not real. They, they were so familiar, so accustomed to handling the real thing, that when a counterfeit crossed their hands, they immediately recognized something is off. And if you want to be able to test the spirits, and if you want to be able to discern the truth, and you want to be able to defend yourself and the church and your family, you need to know the Word. Inside and out, backward and forward, fill your mind with it, feed your soul with it, meditate on it day and night. Be like the Bereans. You remember in the book of Acts, the Bereans, it says they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul the Apostle told them was true. Don't just take it because someone's saying it. They searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul, who was performing miracles, was saying was true. <clears throat> and when I say the word, I mean the Bible. I don't mean devotions or commentaries or articles or books. They can be helpful, but only after a thorough knowledge of the Word has been cemented in your minds. And when you do this, you will begin to be able to recognize error and discern the truth. And with the proliferation of information today from podcasts, videos, on the internet, everything, much of it claiming to be Christian, you, you need a guide. You need a measuring stick to determine and discern the truth from the twisted. And the Bible is that guide. But we aren't only concerned with defense. The church is also called to offense. Did you know that? To advance against the kingdom of darkness. And we're the only God-ordained institution in the world with the ability to do that. In Acts 26, 18, this is a mission the church is called to. To open the eyes of the blind and turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may be saved. You know, we began uh, this morning saying that if our focus is in the wrong place, we'll be open to attacks. If we're not on guard against the deceptions that come from within. But also, if our focus is on the wrong place, we're not going to be able to address all of the problems and changes in the world around us. And I know just about everybody in this room, when you see it, you want to do something, don't you? But you just don't know how. Well, the Bible teaches us where we ought to fix our attention and how to bring this about. We, as the church, have the truth that changes people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And for that to happen... People need to hear what you have to say. And so if you're concerned about the condition of the world around you, if you are concerned about the direction we're headed as a nation or as a culture, and you're fearful of the rapid change and the moral landslide, if you're a Christian, you can rejoice. Because I am convinced that we alone, the church, the ones who have the truth, are the only ones who can do anything about it. Because it's not a battle of politics. It's not a battle of the left and the right, and it's, it's, not, it's not even a battle of facts or fiction. It's not a battle of right 
and wrong. It's a battle between two kingdoms. It's between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. And so conservatism won't save us, and traditions won't save us, and facts won't save us, and law won't do anything. The, the only one who can do anything is God who is able to break the chains and open eyes and change the hearts of man. That's what needs to happen. This changes the whole way you'll think about engaging these things. Consider 2 Timothy 2.26. The Lord's servant. That's all of us, by the way. Every believer is a servant of God. The Lord's servant is kind, teaches, endures evil patiently, corrects his enemies with gentleness. Why? So that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses. And listen to this. Escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The Lord elects to use His church to bring people to their senses. Now, He may not. That's entirely up to Him. But if He does, He does it through the work of the church. Now, how many of you think the world around you is losing their minds? You think it's insane out there. People deny what is objectively obvious. That they, don't, they, don't, uh, they, they don't just seem to be able to understand anything that is true. And things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. And you want to do something about it. And rightly so. And so, you know, you, you want to see people come to a knowledge of the truth. You want them to see how, how ridiculous the world around them is. You want them to be set free from their confusion and, and the chaos that they're creating. You want the world to accept wise solutions instead of foolish and destructive ones. Well, how do you do that? What, what part do you have in this? It's right there in 2 Timothy. Be kind. Number one, be kind. Is that, is that one of the first things that comes to your mind, engaging the world? Kindness? Kindness is sorely lacking in the culture wars today. In the videos that you see, in the newscasts, and the podcasts, and whatever else there is, the one thing absent from them all is kindness, isn't it? It must not be like that in the church. If you would have any impact for godliness, you must love your enemies. And instead of mocking them, Instead of belittling them, instead of insulting them, in whatever you do and say, you must be kind. Second, uphold the truth. And this comes naturally next, doesn't it? Because in our kindness, in our, in our compassion, there is a tendency to downplay the truth, especially if this truth would make a person uncomfortable. Well, this must not be done. It's not compassion to deny the truth. It's not kindness to deny this. And they're not mutually exclusive either. We often think, well, I can either be kind or I can tell them the truth. No. You must speak the truth in love. You must speak in kindness and speak the truth unwaveringly. And because you uphold the truth, you must suffer patiently. As there is no doubt that you will. When you uphold the truth in a world that despises it, there will be a price to pay. And whatever that price is, if you would maintain your witness before God, if you would honor Him, if you would see change, then you must endure the consequences patiently. And this is contrary to how we think. We think, well, I will, I will 
gather up my courage and I will preach the truth. I'll do it with kindness. And immediately the person that I'm speaking to will believe everything I say and it will go well. No. You preach the truth and you might be despised, but don't be discouraged because even in your suffering, or maybe especially through your suffering, the Lord will use that to turn men and women to Himself. I think of the English Reformation. English Reformation, when the, when the, the nation of England was turning from being Catholic to being Protestant, it wasn't that the preaching was unimportant, but the greater impact... What impacted the people as much as the preaching did was how the preachers died. Many did, over 300. They suffered patiently and were burned alive. They were burned at the stake. And people saw this happening and said, well, they're sealing whatever they said with their own lives. We better take seriously what's being said. In fact, it got so bad that instead of doing it publicly, they started to uh, have these ex executions hidden away behind closed doors so that nobody could see. Because the effect that this was having on the people was greater than all of the sermons, it seemed, combined. And the whole of England believed their cause. And so don't despair. God may accomplish more through your suffering and dying than you ever dreamed could be accomplished with your living. And if our great concern is for the kingdom of God and His advancement, we know that the resurrection from the dead awaits those who've put their trust in Christ. You don't have anything to be afraid of. And lastly, four. Correct with gentleness. It's easy to correct. It's something else to correct with gentleness. That's what we're called to. I remember, uh, not a point of pride for me, but I was talking to a Muslim man and we were speaking about the deity of Christ and, and I got a little worked up. Uh, I wasn't angry at him or anything like that. I wasn't rude to him, but I was excited and a bit brash. And the next time I spoke with the man, he refused to take up the subject at all. He would not talk about anything concerning Christ. I had not been rude to him about it, but I had not been gentle and it closed the door. Now we must be in control when we correct so that we are able to correct with gentleness. Correction is not, is not the goal. Correction with gentleness. And so if you want to see the world around you changed, that's how you do it. That's how you open the eyes of the blind. You say, well, God does it. Yes, absolutely He does, but He does it through you. And He does it through your kindness. And He does it through your faithfulness to speak the truth. And He does it through your patient endurance. And He does it through your gentle correction. Now lastly, as to our weapons, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Not the same weapons that the world around us uses. But they have divine power to destroy fortresses or strongholds. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have been given weapons, and those weapons have divine power, not to destroy the bodies of our enemies, but to destroy arguments, ideas, strongholds, and arrogant opinions lifted up against the knowledge of God. And it is a fortress, isn't it? When you look at the world around you at large, at politics, media, education, the corporate world, entertainment, all of it, every institution in the world seems to have aligned itself with Satan and against God. And you wonder what hope 
does the church have of possibly making a single inroad into this? I mean, you think the church is going to replace Hollywood? Have you ever seen a Christian movie? They're not going to replace Hollywood anytime soon. And besides, there's no divine power in them anyway. Well, what do we do? When I said I speak the truth, when I said we speak the truth, I don't mean facts. I don't mean even that we point to natural law. I mean, listen, people who are, are confused about their gender, they, they don't need a lecture about the reality of biology. I mean, it's absolutely clear that the one thing they don't care about are the facts about biology. And nothing you can say, no matter how reasonable it is or based in facts it is, is going to change their minds. When I say we speak the truth, I mean we speak the Word of God. We bring the Word of God to bear on every situation. Because we don't wage war like the world does. And we don't need to redeem culture. And we don't need to transform academia. We don't need to win elections. But we do need to preach Christ and seek to redeem people and to exalt the truth. And then things will change. Then the culture will change and the academics will change. And the politics will change from the preaching and exaltation of Christ and the gospel and the truth. This is encouraging. I hope this is encouraging. It ought to be. Because when you look at the world around you, it's, it's like Leviathan, isn't it? It's a giant. It's an impenetrable fortress. And the one thing you know is you have no way to overcome it. You, you can't. Muster all the strength that you can possibly muster. Give your entire life to the task. You won't even make a dent. But God can. And if you go like, Midian, like Gideon did against Midian, you take up the Lord's weapons. You remember the story of Gideon? He defeated the entire army of the Midianites, 120,000 men with 300. And do you remember how he did it? With the trumpet and with the torch. Trumpeting in the same way, we trumpet the truth of God and bear light in the world around us. Take up the Lord's weapons and that brings divine power to bear on the fortress of the evil one. And though he can resist you and quite easily, he cannot resist even a breath from the mouth of God. And how does God tell us to do this? Again, preach the word, uphold the truth, herald the gospel, take every thought captive to Christ, suffer patiently, and in everything you do, gentleness and kindness. You're probably never going to make a great movie or become the prime minister, or turn a university around, or influence a scientific world in a dramatic, direction-altering way. But everybody in this room can speak the truth, and you can preach the gospel, and you can be faithful. And if you do, to those you are speaking with, to those you have influence on, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's how people are delivered. They hear the truth. They hear it from you. And the truth will set them free. Well, let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God. You are almighty. You are sovereign over all. You are wise. You know the end from the beginning. Nothing ever surprises you. You are the perfect judge. You hold in your hand the life and breath of all mankind. You turn the hearts of kings like water in a channel. Nothing is outside of your control, Lord. And we pray that you would be merciful to the world around us, that they would, by the upholding of the truth, come to their senses, Lord. We want to see people delivered. Oh, Lord, worse, they don't even know that they're lost. They don't even know that they're held captive by the evil one to do his will. And I pray, God, that you would set them free. And Lord, I don't know the hearts of everybody in this room here this morning, but you do. And I pray if there's anybody here, they don't know you. They are outside of Christ. I pray, Lord, that that they would reconsider. That they would see the wisdom of your ways. That they would see the worth of Christ that they would see the confusion around them and the terror of sin and that they would come to their senses and like the prodigal sons would turn back to you and be saved. God, you would have them. Anyone who repents of their sins and turns to you for salvation, turns to Christ, you will save. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the grace to come. You are our only hope. You are the only hope for the church and the only hope for the world and the only hope in this life. And so it's to you we look and to you we sing. Amen.